Hello and welcome to Inside the Globe. I'm your host Amelia Hall and today we are interviewing Lindsay Forrester about sustainability and how we can make a difference. So my first question is why did you choose your career? Like how did you get there? <laughs> you know this is a this is a really it's a I never chose this career I honestly I didn't it wasn't something I ever planned to do when I was 14 or 15 I wanted to join the police force and I'd been wanting to join the police force you know 14 15 16 17 but mum and dad always wanted me to join um or before I joined the police they wanted me to get a good education um and I was fortunate enough to, at the time, I passed me GCSEs. Well, it was the CSEs and, and O-levels when I was at school. And I did okay at that. And I went off and I did my A-levels. And I seemed to do all right at those as well. So I went on and on and on. And when I got out of university, I actually did still want to join the police force. But there's a whole bunch of other things I wanted to do as well. Um and I don't know, I just, I, I fell into this career. I, I'd love to be able to say to you, Amelia, that, that this was really considered, but it wasn't. It was a series of, oh, and I'd like to do that. Oh, and I, I kind of like to do a little bit of that. And so I kind of, I ended up not going into the police force because at the time I applied to the accelerated promotions program and I got in, but I didn't, I didn't really fit in. So I didn't, I didn't take choose that career and I went off and did environment instead and safety and but it was a complete fluke I had no idea how good I'd be or not was sustainability actually something that you were always interested in or was it something that just developed no I I even as in Litland so I always liked horses and I used to go horse riding and I used to really enjoy being in the countryside and I used to like disappearing into woodlands because we had a wood nearby. And I always loved watching the creatures and bird watching and all those kinds of weird things. Look, I, was, I didn't have many friends, hey. <laughs> but, you know, nature was something that I really enjoyed. And, and I didn't know at that time that you could do a career in environment or anything to do with that. Hence choosing, choosing the police force. But, you know, it's, it's something... I just, again, I just sort of really, really enjoyed. And I could see, again, at 14, 15, I used to read the newspapers. Uh, my friends used to read magazines, but I would read the newspaper. And I was, uh, I had the nickname of the class communist, uh, which is, I don't think I liked at the time, but looking back, it was because I was much I felt quite informed about what was going on in the world and there were not good things going on in the world. There was pollution and there was violence and there was war and I was worried about them. And so sustainability, I guess, it's something that I've been interested in since I was, I was a teenager and I didn't know why we'd gotten to that place, what, why these things had happened. And I didn't like it and what do we do about it? So uh, sustainability, I, I guess, really and truly, it was always there in the back of my mind. It was always there in my brain. And it's 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 how I've grew, grown up. Well, that's also something that's 
kind of come in now as well because a lot of my friends are really interested in it even though if they don't want to do it when they're older I think it's just something that everyone at the moment is really interested in I think you're right my next question is about obviously so obviously before the 2000s the construction companies were mainly very male orientated so I was just wondering why did you join a construction company when they were male orientated yeah I was thinking that as well (laughs) um I so I have a real history in it my dad worked in the construction industry well he worked in precast concrete so as a nipper you know other kids were playing with octons and lego and I was working I I used to play with bits off construction sites and lumps of wood and and rubbish like that Um, so construction was always something in my childhood and my dad always used to work on big projects um, like tunnels like uh, the London Underground and things like that and we were always dragged I, I said that we'd spent some time abroad and that was always with construction projects whether it was Cairo Wastewater or it was um, I don't know the New York Metro so my childhood was filled with stories of building these great big projects so it was something that was not alien to me um, And I didn't really realise it was so male-dominated and macho until I arrived in in there. Um, And how did I get into it? Um, I was working in the ceramics industry at the time, the chemicals industry. And and I could see that my job would disappear over time because the pollution laws in the United Kingdom were getting more and more and more. And our business was starting to to change the manufacturing and put them into different countries that hadn't much... um, uh you know lax laws so eventually they would i knew that they would close us down so i needed to find another job and my dad bought a company magazine home and it had got this environmental advisor safety and environmental advisor position i thought i'll apply for that i'm a safety advisor now in the chemicals industry so i'm going to go and apply for it and I, i got an interview when you've got a job and you go for an interview you can be a lot more cheeky and I think I must have come over as quite a confident, cheeky person. Um, and it was actually the one of the directors that interviewed me and he took a chance. I was the first woman that he'd ever employed into a, a safety and environmental position in the civil engineering business ever. Was this your job now? Or this was, was this was in AMEC. Oh, so I joined AMEC um, 24 years ago. So um, so AMEC, uh, at that time, it had a big civil engineering where it built airports and railway lines and bridges and tunnels, and it was cool. So loads of really big civil infrastructures. Um, so I went to work for it for, as a safety and environmental advisor working on, on sites. In fact, I had 170 sites in, in the regions that I looked at, at. And of course, I pitched up and I didn't really realise that everybody else was a bloke. Like, like women in the construction environments, they were in um, the offices as secretaries or they were tea ladies. Or they might be in the canteen as a cook, but they certainly 
were very few and far between. I think I met one woman engineer. No, maybe two women engineers in the whole of the, the Amex civil engineering. Well, there's a lot there of were people no... in that company, there were... isn't there? So There were thousands. There were literally thousands. But the, the, the women in the company were in what you'd expect women to be in. The, you know, the traditional things like human resources or, um, yeah, a lot of tea ladies, lots of secretaries, lots of coordinators. There's lots of lots of women working for men. Yeah, there were there were very few women who were the bosses, and yeah, the construction environment was really quite macho. I don't think they were quite ready for me. There was one thing my dad's really taught me, and he's taught me really well, is to swear, and so I'm used to people effing and blinding and being rude to me and I've got quite a thick skin so I guess that's really helped me in the construction environment because people would say things you're looking well that's nasty but instead of crying about it you're just like right I'm going to give you as good back again well going back to your point about uh, most people being men who are the boss well you're now someone's boss I am. <laughs> Do you think things have really changed in that way? That there are more female bosses? So in my in my working life, um, undoubtedly, Amelia, and only for the better. Only for the better. When when I started out, even when I worked in Johnson Matthew, all the all the bosses were men. All of them. In every discipline, in every function, they were all men. Um, there were some women managers, but they were few and far between. Um, and in the construction industry itself, it, it's changed. When I joined, I said there were a few engineers. There are now still not enough women engineers. If you ever want to change your career, be an engineer. We are crying out for engineers and women make really good engineers um, and scientists and biologists and every other mathematicians and plant scientists. Women, women are brilliant. They're just as good, if not even better than, than men at jobs. And in construction, things have moved on. They have changed. They've changed a lot. We're still not out of that discrimination piece yet. You, you may or may not know that, that big companies have to now, they have to publish the pay gaps. And they have to publish the pay gaps because the government knows that there's still a parity between what men are paid and what women are paid and that pay gap still exists today so there is some some ex discrimination not necessarily to your face and how people talk about one another but in the way that people are treated in terms of pay and remuneration well we're coming sorry go on. as you said about um how you need more women in construction and all those other jobs what personality traits or interests does a woman need and also what qualifications and degrees so it really it you know it it really depends um i would always say if you can go on and pursue your education 
your education is one of those things that you don't realize you really needed until you're much later on down the line and then you have to work 10 times harder because you've got a full-time job and a house and all these other things and you're trying to make up in your education so if you can carry on but there are two things for me that you need and it's not just a woman thing I think it's for everybody I think there is being curious I'm curious about the environment. I'm curious about why have we got to this climate crisis? How have we got to the climate crisis? What's allowed the factors to get to the climate crisis? And then the second thing I am is passionate about doing something about it. I think those two characteristics are immensely important in being successful in your career, whether a woman or not. And that is the absolute curious nature and that passion if you can demonstrate both and you feel passionate and enthusiastic about what you're doing you will win and you will succeed I think as a woman you've you've got to develop a thick skin and when somebody tells you no I'm going to prove them wrong when I was a kid um it was an uncle of mine he said I said that I'd like to go to university, maybe. And he said to me, he said, oh, you've got to be clever for that. And there was an implicit um, um, thinking on his behalf that I was a bit stupid and I couldn't do it. And I proved him wrong. And that tenaciousness, I, I, I have dyslexia. And my English teacher told me I couldn't do an A-level in English. Guess what A-level I've got? You did an A-level in English. So there's, um, there's a bit of stubbornness. And when people tell you that you can't do it, prove them wrong. Yeah. I was told on a construction site, oh, women's safety advisors, uh, you can't do that. Nobody will listen to you. Are you now women's safety? I was a first woman's safety advisor. And I guess... One of the things that I'm most proud of is that people would then seek me out. By the time I was promoted into another position, right, go and have a word with Lynn. She knows what she's talking about. She'll tell you how to do it. Or, you know, Lynn, we need your opinion here. And by the time I'd left that safety and environmental position in civil engineering, people would regard me as somebody who was practical and understood. And I think almost to get on at that time Amelia and, and, and the perception that I've got is you had to be better than the fellas to get on because you're a woman you were already viewed as somebody who was weak who wouldn't know what they were doing and uh, in a very macho environment people people needed to see you as something better than the other guys so out of all the safety advice they come to me and I'm the only woman, and that they would regard me as Lindsay's good, go to her. But that that in its turn was in my favour because I got noticed. People saw me. Out of all the fellas, there was one woman. Well, and now she was the always going to you for help. And it, so. it came to me. So when it came up to a promotion to, to be a UK, an, an environmental manager for the UK, you know, somebody was differentiated and that person was me I was the only woman I was the person that everybody was going to jobs are good and it worked in my favor I was just wondering so you work for an oil and gas company I do 
well service company yeah (laughs) well why are they working with sustainability and is there any credibility gap you know that was a killer question (laughs) that that's a really that is a real killer question and and i guess um look at the moment we live in a predominantly carbon-based economy have you got shoes on no but i can yeah no 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 but i've got my shoes on this shoe was made not through renewable energy it's made out of materials that were not that are not i don't know natural fibers the whole world around you from the screen that you're looking at me in there will be a component that has been produced through fossil fuel through oil and gas and just at the moment we are still predominantly a carbon-based economy so from the resources that we consume to the food that we eat to the power that's powering your hospital they're all carbon based whether we like it or not but we've got to change we've absolutely got to change but in but that change is a transition from where we are now to where we need to be and oil and gas will play an increasingly small role as we go along but it's still there so my company is a company that provides services to stop it from the pipelines from leaking from the refineries blowing up from um uh i don't know the north the gas platforms dropping to pieces and we need to continue to do that and we need to to use a lot less fossil fuel And the way that we use that fossil fuel has to be absolutely safe and environmentally safe as well. So you could say, isn't that a bit of an anathema? You know, the credibility gap, you're oil and gas, but you're doing sustainability. But we still have to use fossil fuel. We still have to look after it. We we have to transition it out. And our company used to be, only six years ago, used to be, 85% 85% upstream oil and gas, and we're now 35%. So our company is also changing from what used to be an oil and gas company through to an energy company, energy service company. So we'll now put you up, I don't know, a solar field. We can put you up wind turbines. We can deal with your wastewater from cities when you've got flash flooding. We'll clean up your nuclear waste. So we do a whole bunch of stuff now that we didn't do before as we're transitioning from an oil and gas company to an energy services company. Well, I'm also guessing that that also helps your company because more people want to be more sustainable. So you're kind of going with what people want. Yeah, and I guess the, the problem, not the problem, the challenge, the challenge that we've got is that Becoming more sustainability uh, and sustainability minded, it costs money and it has to be paid for. And if I could wave my magic wand and change the government or change what the government did, I would make us pay more tax and that that tax goes into making us a more sustainable society. Because I think. We've got to do this at pace. 
people invariably just don't want to pay for it. Or even if I think you cut down one sector of what people pay tax for and then change that into a bit more sustainability, that people won't be paying as more, but you'll they'll be focusing more on sustainability and how that I think people would also be more aware of it if they paid part of their tax to it. I think I think I think you've you've hit a really important point there, Amelia. I think people need to understand where the money goes and to understand that we need substantial investment. And that I think we're all vested in having a more low carbon future, but that low carbon future does come with a price tag. And it's a substantial price tag. Um, there's things like putting the infrastructure in just for a thing. I I know that 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 there, there, there was a question in the question set about electric cars. I think electric cars are a lesser of a two evil. I I, I think transportation electric cars are great, but they have to be manufactured. They have to be um, disposed of when when you think about any commodity these days we need to think about its whole life cycle not it's just that one commodity that one car to create that car there's the the chemicals that we have to produce for its paints and its lubricants and the rubber on the wheels and the steel and how that steel's manufactured because that's really energy intensive from right the way down to right the way when it's sold to us we use it in the infrastructure that we need for electric cars clearly isn't there yet because we need much more charging points and, and sort out how we dispose of batteries right the way through how do we reprocess cars into new cars and how do we do that in low carbon because they because it's the whole profile from its beginning right to its end that we need to be aware of and that's the thing i think the future should be nobody owns cars the cars are there but nobody owns them anymore We've got we've got a population of somewhere in the region of 65 million people and probably in the order of, I don't know, 35 million to 40 million vehicles. And I don't know about your dad, but mine's sitting on the drive there. I'm not using it. Yeah, my my dad's car's on the drive. And it hasn't and been used in days. So. It hasn't been used in days. But when you think about it collectively, there'll be lots of times that people aren't using the cars. What, what about people who have uh, a night shift and they don't use their car in the day, but they could use it at night or vice versa? We actually don't need as many vehicles. We need to reimagine vehicles and vehicle ownership. Could you imagine if you've, it was almost like Uber? I've got my phone. Actually, I'm going out for the night. I want a nice vehicle. I only need to take two people and that's all. And then you get this little teeny vehicle that arrives and you sits in, takes you to wherever you get out and it buggers off again. Yeah. I but I'm, I'm going to Ikea and you can order a great big van because you're going to buy loads. And then it c comes to you, pick all your stuff and then back again. So you could pick and choose the kind of vehicle that you needed only when you needed it. Sorry, so, I've, I've gone off on one. <laughs> um, my dad drives 
across the UK and in different countries. And I think he does need a car sometimes. But if he got if he went with Uber, you wouldn't even have to drive. So exactly, exactly. I I could foresee that when you're my age, I'm fifty one. Yes. Um, but when 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 you know you're talking what in thirty years time, more than that, um, that that we won't own cars anymore. I'd love that this was the future. We don't own cars anymore. The cars that are on the road are all self-drives. And it's only when you need that resource, it comes to you and takes you to where you need to be. That would be some future because just how much resource we're wasting by having cars sat in the garages, not being used. All that energy, all those carbon emissions that it's made to make those cars to sit in our garages. It's a waste. It's a waste of resource and it's a waste of time and it's a waste of my money when I could have just Ubered something. <laughs> that's that's the future. Um, another thing is that in the news recently, they've been talking about 2050 as a date for mm. a, the environment problem to hopefully eventually come to an end. Just wondering if you thought that was too soon or too far away and if it's too late for us to make a difference. So the 2050 piece is around the climate change piece, the emissions. So it's the point at which that we need to be at net zero. So we're not pumping out as much carbon dioxide. There's too much, there's way too much carbon dioxide in the air. We're at what? We're over 400 ppms of, of carbon dioxide. We have never, ever had this level of CO2 in the air. Do I think it's too late? No, I don't think it's too late, but we can't afford it to get any more. Um, is it is 2050 too late? It would be great if it was 2030, but the likelihood is it's never going to be 2030. Literally, every pound that we spend in the world today would have to be diverted towards putting the infrastructure to, for zero carbon. That ain't going to happen. Um, is 2050 too late? It's about as late as we can allow it to be. And that's what the climate scientists have told us. If we haven't done it by 2050, we are facing an eco well not just an economic catastrophe it's an environmental catastrophe and trees don't walk do they no sadly sadly no they, they don't walk and and that's the thing a bit of a bit of change in the climate is fine and and in the past in global history we've had much warmer climates than we've got now but the difference with this is that we're seeing the scale of change and the pace of change so quick that it's heating up that normally over thousands and thousands of years, you can get trees that, that are able to migrate. They set seed, that seedling grows up, it matures, it throws seed. And, and so trees move, but they move over thousands of years because it's the progeny that, that grow up and then throw seed and and that's how that, that's how they've been able to survive um, heating and cooling climates. 
But when you heat a climate up so quickly over tens of years, it doesn't give plant species enough time and, and animal species enough time to evolve to the new conditions. And so we're seeing what we're seeing now, and that is a sixth mass extinction. So over Earth time, there have been five periods before this one of mass extinction. And those, those are whole um, species just wiped out. And, but they happened over thousands of years. And the difference on, and the really worrying thing is that this is happening not in thousands of years, this is in tens of years. The amount of species in the world, when I was your age, more diverse than it is now and that's worrying because what's it going to be like when you're my age and the more that you erode the gene pool so the amount of, of, of um yeah genes that we've got in um that, that make us up the less ability that we have for things like genetic variation and evolution so we're effectively reducing the gene pool and that's that, that's not a good thing so Coming back to your original question, 2050 is the absolute line in the sand. If we haven't done it by then, then we don't have a great future. And I would love, and it is my plan to work really hard to make sure that your grandchildren have a great future as well, because they deserve it. So we can't wreak all this havoc without doing something about it. And it, and it starts with my generation and we'll pass that baton on to you to continue the good work. Do I think we can do it? Yes, I do. And we all have to passionately believe that we can do it. And we've got the technology. We know on, based on the technology that we've got now that we can do it. In 10 years time, just think how, how it's going to come on. When I was a kid, these mobile phones were the things on Star Trek. They didn't exist. When I went to university, these things were as big as a shoebox. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they were huge. They were massive and they were so expensive. They were almost the same price as a car. And now look how far we come. We know that if we put our mind, our curiosity and our passion to these things, that we have the ability to change and to change at pace and quickly. Sorry, that was a really long answer to a quite it's a small fine. It question. It was a good answer. <laughs> Do you think that more people are noticing it and trying to get other people to notice it? Or do you think that's still going to take some time? Do you know what, Amelia? I, I, this is a Greta Thunberg thing for me. I, I, I think, I think um, Greta Thunberg is a fantastic ambassador for her generation because I think she has stood up and told the world off I shouldn't have to do this I should be a school kid I should be in the classroom learning about this stuff and I'm I'm having to come to the United Nations to tell you off it's really fantastic to see that the generation who's going to inherit these problems are the ones who are starting to get involved and are more enlightened. And I'm, I'm sorry to say a lot of my generation, a lot of my generation are stuck, are stuffed my head in the sand. It doesn't affect me. I'll be dead before this is a problem. Yeah. And they're right. They will be. <laughs> but they don't think about 
the rest no. of everyone else. No, no, no. They're they're busy eating the KFC and throwing the wrappers on the floor and driving massive big gas guzzling cars and I don't know some philosopher, some thinker who said that you know we 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 don't own the world. You know we we borrow this environment from our children, and it's it's right. And it's massively important that we respect that. There's a lot of damage on our environment. And if we work really hard, we can put it right. We can, we can make it sustainable. And we have, we have an obligation to do that, Amelia. And, and I'm sad to say your generation also has an obligation. And probably the generation after you will also have that obligation until we get it right. And it can be right. Well, as people at your work say, um, as a champion for sustainability, I was wondering what what have you done to make your life more sustainable? Not enough. I haven't done enough. But there are some things that, that I can share that I, I do do in the house that I live in. I often see on telly on, on the telly, you get these programs on buildings, you know, you, you know, the, 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 like they knock buildings down and put up, you know, like, like there's a program called Grand Designs and they talk about, oh, we put up a sustainable building, but they've actually knocked a building down. So the, the house that I live in, this was this was awful. It was um it needed to be, or at least they said in the, the, the pack when we bought it, they should be raised to the ground and we should build another house. But we spent a lot of money bringing this one back to life. So I didn't, we didn't buy any new bricks and we didn't have to buy all that. We, we, we repaired what was here. It was really expensive. And then we made it as energy efficient as we possibly could. We put solar arrays on the house so it generates its own electricity when the sun's shining which is fab it's so warm i mean it's really warm it doesn't take that much heating even though it's it's quite a reasonable house we're just working with woodland trust as well i own um the fields out at the back so we're going to make that into a, a woodland which is it's dead cool so it's going to be a three acre wood and um we're getting friends and family to dedicate trees so I'm, re I'm really proud of that there are things when this year i've vowed that we're going to use a lot less plastics so um and a lot less chemicals so part of going gray haired is is so i'm not using the chemicals to dye my hair and then the shampoo that i'm using i've those shampoo bars are brilliant i don't know if you've tried them have a go but then i don't buy plastic bottles we buy local we buy organic, we look at food miles and we go on holiday in Britain. But I've still got a car. And my next car will be a second hand, not a new one, but a second hand electric car. Because I don't want to buy, I don't want to buy new stuff and, and commodities. I was I was also looking at my wardrobe. And, you know, there's a lot of fast fashion now. I'm not a fashionable. You can tell I am not a fashionable <laughs> woman. I never was and never will be. Um, but I have found out I'm going to buy a lot less clothes. I don't I don't need them. And when I do buy things, I'll keep them. And in fact, um, my partner and I, we were going through the wardrobe and having a look at what we got. And I found a shirt that was 25 years old. And I thought, oh, I can't match that. That is 
that's brilliant. That's 25 years old, that shirt is. And then I was having a look at, I have a fleece that I bought at university and that must be 30 years old. 30 years old, I've got a fleece that's 30 years old. But I want to do more of that. I want to keep things for a lot longer, which is by quality and just keep it and keep it and keep it. But again, I can always do more. I know I can do more. Well, I think going back to the clothes a lot. So a lot of, I think it's 70s fashion has come quite trendy (laughs) now. So you might as well keep your old clothes and because then they could become fashionable again. And then you're just not wasting you're right I you're right and I, I did see that I um I am old enough to remember the 70s I was a kid of the 70s um and I had um I had a pair of red flares oh they're bloody awful red awful flares I didn't like them then um I don't but I was old enough to see the flares fashion come back again. The only problem is I was six when I had red flares and then it came back to flash back in fashion and I was in my twenties, but Hey ho, never mind. That's the only thing with, with, with some of the fashions that you might grow out of your clothes. Cause I was a lot lighter when I was in my twenties than in my fifties as well, considerably, but you're right. You know, at the end of the day, why do we have to have so much new things in it? I never shop in Primark. I'm lucky because I can afford to, to shop in the clothes shops I, I, I shop in. I go Marks and Sparks or whatever. But I see Primark and I can see you pick up a T-shirt for a few pounds, maybe a fiver. But that's been dyed. The cottons have been, uh, or even uh, man-made fibres, they, they've been produced. But then you've got somebody in that, that value chain that's had to sew that together. And then still Primark need to make money on it. So you can't be paying the worker very much. And what about the environmental impacts? They've probably been made in countries where the environmental laws are poor. So there's you know, pollution associated with it. And I don't want to be part of that anymore. I, 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 I don't. So I wear lots of, you know, lots of different clothes, lots of old clothes. I don't mind going into secondhand stores and buying from there. You well, know, I think people need to think about that a bit more. Another thing is that now people are starting to thrift more clothes and buy something secondhand, but then make it their own. Yeah. And it makes things a bit trendy and it changes them and gives it another life. You know what? Not only that, you know, you're right. They've made it their own, but they've also made it a one-off. There are too many things that, like sausages that come out of a sausage factory, they're all the same. You know, you go in Primark, there'll be, uh, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 T-shirts exactly the same sold. Do you want to be one of the sausages in the sausage factory? I know. I think it's really good. I have never learned. Well, I never had a sewing machine. I could hand sew, but but my partners bought me a sewing machine. I'm like, I have now learned to do things like zipping things up, making stuff, making cushions, making this, but out of stuff that we've already got. But I remember this. I remember my grandma doing the same. And there's a certain amount of, you know, we're turning a circle here. We're going back to the things 
that that used to happen with my grandparents you know make do and mend I mean that was something that we were brought up with as kids but now you know I and I think we need to continue to revisit the great things about you know life before this mass consumerism I mean it comes to something Amelia you know I went in the supermarkets I don't go often to the supermarkets anymore because we just buy off a list that we need but I remember as a kid you know you go into the the shop and you'd ask for some biscuits and there was a choice of three you could have you know we could have uh, maybe a digestive you could have a rich tea or a fancy finger something like that you've got three choices I go to the supermarket, there's a whole row. There's literally 200 or 300 types of biscuit. I mean, that's just biscuit. But they're also, I mean, a lot of them all are all the same, just slightly different shapes. But, but, you know, we wonder why. Yeah, and, and we wonder why sometimes, why we don't have time to do things. I have to spend time choosing from 200 kinds of biscuit. For, I used to have choice of three. I go, one, I'll have that one, right. And now you'll see perusing up and down the aisle going, oh, that, no, I'll have them. Jammy, jammy, no, this, this, this. And then I end up buying more than I wanted to because I've got more choice and I didn't know if I'd like the jammy dodgers more than I would like the Cadbury's fingers or whatever they were. And then, you know, this is how mass consumerism gets you. You've got way too much choice, so you buy more than you want, you eat them all, you put on weight, and then you've got a massive bum like me. <laughs> but you get my point. You get my yeah. point. The more the, the more choices that you have, the more production, the more resources, the more that you actually didn't need. It's not good for you. You have to spend time doing it. It eats into our, our life. It's corrosive. Could you give one thing each for what the government, industry and individuals should be doing now to improve sustainability? Hmm. So I think governments, I think governments need to be more courageous. They need to make choices that are hard but I didn't think they need the courage to take those difficult choices now. So we don't delay decision-making into the future. And I think that is to do again with coming back to investment. I think we need to put more money into um, ensuring that we put the infrastructure in for low carbon now. So we spend my taxes doing it, not yours. Because I can see that the government are making big choices like HS2. I would rather the money be put into public transport and those kinds of big ticket items, but it's going to cost me money in my taxes. And I want the government to be courageous and make those decisions. From an industry perspective, I would love to see every industry making real hard 
stretch targets for all elements of sustainability. So not just the carbon emissions and climate change, but things on human rights and consumption and where you buy products and modern slavery. I would like all companies to really target change and not talk about it and write it down, but actually do it. So I'd love to be able to see some behavioral change my vision, for example, in, in my company, and I'm not sure if I'll be able to do it, but this is what I want us to do, is to change behaviour and stop talking about sustainability. In the next five to ten years, stop talking about it because it's just the way we do our business. We don't call it sustainability. We call it how we do our business. So I want to change the behaviour of the company. That means if I win the lottery and disappear into the future, it means it hasn't stopped. The business has already changed. And I, I can see it's happening, but I so want it to happen. So I'd like to see industries have that behavioral change and put sustainability at the heart of their company. And it's just the way they do business. And from the individual, I think I'd like to very much revisit what I'd said earlier. As an individual, I would love everybody to be curious about sustainability and passionate about doing something about it. With those two things, we could be really successful and get the pace of change that we absolutely need. Well, my next guest is someone who works for the NHS and they're going to discuss about how the difference between how people in other countries with no free healthcare should maybe need it and the advantages congratulations on making it, it through this far of the, this episode of inside the globe if you have, have any questions for lindsay if or if you would questions. like to speak about a topic or hear about some wow someone cool. speaking about it then please dm me on instagram cool at inside the globe um in my next yeah, episode, question. we will and be talking to is, Paula Reed we, we about the benefits and to not so benefits from, of free healthcare. Um, the Thank you for listening. Bye. Generation. And I'd like to ask your guest from the professional point of view. What have we learned that we need to prioritize in healthcare globally? So that, that would be my, my question I, I would like to ask. And I'd like to tune in and find out what the answer is. Well, hopefully it'll be up soon. Fantastic. Thank you for joining today. <laughs>